Yes, sir. Woo, let's get started. All right, hey friends, uh, JSF and JM here. Hello, hello. And welcome to the second bookshelf episode. Uh, just a quick reminder: this is more of an academic take on socialism, where we're going to set out um, to give you an explanation of what socialism actually is. Uh, so that we're all working from the same foundation and starting point rather than, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. We just want to make sure we're all having a conversation together and we're speaking. We're at least like level setting right. um, where it's like, this is what we're doing. Here's that. You know, I think I said Lunchable last time. It's really more after upon pondering much more the metaphor as they're important. It's more of, you know. Your your cliff bar, if you will, or the cliff notes version. Of yeah, it's capitalism. like a white. It's like a one you know? page, like a one pager, right? It's like, yeah. hey, here's the summary of this. It's the it's a framework. It's not the whole body. We don't get into the weeds and the nuances of no, it. No, it's you know that's for the other one. It's your protein bar, right? I don't want a full meal, but I want to take it to go and just make sure I'm not, as my wife likes to put it, hangry. So <laughs> let's go and not be hangry, and let's uh, learn about some socialism. And with that glorious introduction, we hope. All right, gentlemen, so this is our second bookshelf episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about socialism, trying to get it down, kind of lay out that foundation right um <laughs> that's I, no I, big deal i feel like it's necessary right now um especially kind of in in our culture right now it seems to be marxism socialism are, are buzzwords in a way um so i think it's really good particularly for this topic in light of the previous one of capitalism we just talked about of really setting a foundation of like what the heck are we talking about um it's not a book yeah. man, it's not a buzzword it's it's an economic theory and what are what's kind of the nitty-gritty of that so Obviously, we have Lindy here, our our resident expert. And um, Lindy, I guess to to start off, like, what brought about socialism uh, and Marxism? What really prompted Marx's ideas, his kind of thoughts, and even even the theory as a whole? Like, what prompted socialism? Well, that's a really appropriate question because, kind of unlike capitalism, which, as you said, we dealt with last week. Um, Marxism and socialism and communism, and we're going to try and parse that a a bit here today, was a response to capitalism. Um, So it didn't actually uh, arise, as they, as social scientists say, sui generis of its own, you know, on its own force. But it actually was a response to capitalism. In fact, um, Marx felt like without capitalism and full-blown developed capitalism. Uh, communism and socialism would never have been, come about. So it was necessary to allow that to globally play out. And then you would get this kind of overthrow of the, of the bourgeoisie, of the, the capitalist class. And so it needed capitalism first in Marx's thoughts. But it was really prompted by four um, moral criticisms that that um, Marx brought against capitalism, and I just want to preface this to, for for all of us to recognize, our listeners included, this is not the be all and end all lecture on socialism because right. it's just too involved. But these are the kind of the bare bones, 
because a lot of times we just really don't know what we're talking about. A lot of times mm-hmm. in the United States, socialism and capital or uh, socialism, and sometimes capitalism, if you're left of center, they they function just as a bad word we call the other side. Right. So you know they kind of they're they're what's called an ad hominem argument. You label something like this, and they're all this all of a sudden you've got them in these the mental categories, and they you know they're they're immediately kind of um, stigmatized and demonized. That's not what we're wanting to do here. And so we're wanting to look at what Marx and others who were um, um, architects of this idea, and there were many, Marx and Engels, Friedrich Engels uh, primarily, mm-hmm. uh, who what they saw in the mid to late 19th century, especially in Britain, you know, um, in the north of England, in Manchester, Leeds, in the industrial sectors when the Industrial Revolution took off, and the um, the big, huge factories uh, started to take off in regard to engines of capitalism. The as they've often been called called the the great satanic mills uh, took off, and there were four primary criticisms. The first is um, Marx, based around the research that Engels did, especially in 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 um, Manchester. Uh, is that the conditions of the working class in the 19th century Brit- Britain were frankly just appalling, right? Um, they they were they lived in tenement homes, back to backs. Interestingly enough, I when I was in Leeds doing my PhD, I lived in a back to back. It's kind of like a, a row home or a brownstone, you would call it in New York. Only it doesn't have a back; it shares it with others, and people would be shoved in there. Three, four, five families. Um, there was no sewage. There was no running water, and you know they were just tools. Uh, tools for production. And so that was one of the things that Marx and Engels really thought was a problem. And kind of related to that was a second, and we've probably heard this word kind of thrown around a lot, is the alienation of the worker from labor. So in other words, the worker um, contributes labor, a a pretty significant element to, to production, and would only get just basic returns on it. And most of the returns would go to the, the ownership or the capitalist class, the bourgeoisie, the proletariat, the working class would not get their, their, um, their just due in Marx's view. And then that um, kind of aligns with the third one, and that is this surplus uh, of value would accrue to the, the, the ownership class, the capitalist class. Um, while because of the worker not getting any kind of uh, real returns on their labor based around some what he would consider to be uh, a, a labor theory of value, that labor is more important to put in than, say, money or anything else, um, that the average worker would remain in poverty, in utter and dismal po- poverty. So it was unfair and unjust. And then fourthly, the thing that kind of ran the engine of all of this, according to Marx, was the, the capitalist uh, bourgeoisie uh, ownership class controlled the means of production. They 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 were the owners. Remember how we talked about ownership being so critical, and we mm-hmm. and we will in this contrast it with the idea that God owns everything and and issues of stewardship. But they the owners of land, labor, and capital um, were not equally. It wasn't equally distributed justly, and capitalism kind of um, took the day. And even labor was only valued to the degree it could produce capital. Land was not, was desacralized, and it was just another factor of production. So this systematically kept the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, in power perpetually. So, and all of this kind of ran the idea that that socialism 
and communism saw that there were two primary structural flaws to capitalism. And that is that there was a cap, there was a competition between capitalists, the ones who owned everything and, and, you know, uh, competing with each other. And that would drive down the rate of profit, still giving them a quite a bit of surplus, but it would drive down the rate of profit and then would cause the worker to not get their just due because they would remember they're just now another cost and it would relieve any capitalist incentive uh, to accumulating other than personally and they wouldn't share the wealth with the poor and then secondly capitalism is ultimately dependent upon a poor working class a proletariat as they're they're called uh, kind of those that work for 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 slave wages so the system according to Marx could only develop uh, insofar as it develops a working class. So competition between workers for employment, because you know you, you ended up with very few people owning the means of production, all sorts of people competing for jobs. Um, and that competition for employment keeps the wage at a subsistence level, just barely eking by. And hence, the, all of that surplus from labor goes to the owners, the, the capitalist bourgeois class. So that's really what brought it about. And Marx mm. was concerned to do something about those things. Well, then would you consider, I think we need to look at socialism. Are they all the same, you know, or are there different types of socialism? Um, and then we talk about communism, right? So that's a part. Where, where does, can you kind of bring us through that? Well, that's a really good point, Jam, because we tend to, you know, we're first of all because we don't really know what this is, and we've not <laughs> been taught. I mean, you know, we even said last week a lot of times people don't know what capitalism is, right? We end, we isolated two primary components of capitalism. Say all the more so with this, and we tend to say that socialism is the same thing as co communism, which is the same thing as demo uh, democratic socialism. To be honest with you, they're very they're not very different things, but they're 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 notably different. Communism is kind of the general first idea out of the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital that Marx wrote and his other writings, uh, some of uh, Engels' writings too, was really the primary uh, uh, thing that was put forward first. And here, remember in capitalism, the idea was private ownership and the market mechanism running by uh, supply and demand in light of price, right? Well, in communism, the idea that what takes the place of that, at least temporarily, possibly utopianly, um, that's been the critique of, of socialism and communism, we'll see that later, um, is the state, a powerful central state, operating justly on behalf of the worker, directs the economy by means of planning. So you have a central planning thing, and it's not just an issue of dickering over price and what the market would fetch, but it has to do with this idea according, you know, this old aphorism, um, from everybody according to ability to everybody according to their need. And Marx kind of analyzed four of these four criticisms that we have already kind of talked about. And th this communism was supposed to actually take, uh, take that into consideration. So that the, 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 the working class uh, was, was appallingly poor, that they were alienated from their work, that, that, that they were kept in poverty, and that the bourgeoisie kind of continued to own everything um, and didn't give back. But the problem was, what ended up happening is um, that the, the system changed 
And so in sense, the system changed to where things went global, right? And you, you got, um, you, you got this thing operating where the, the system went global and it started to transnationalize and multinationalize. And so all of a sudden there was a massive amount of workers uh, competing. And also there was a, the entrance of the state, there was the welfare state kind of came into play and they started through collective labor actions and whatever, started to uh, negotiate with, with ownership. And there were some... Um, welfare elements and minimum wage laws and what have you that were put in place. And so what ended up happening is Marx thought that communism would be an overthrow by the the, the uh, proletariat of the bourgeoisie to lose their change. Remember, that didn't happen. And so what ended up happening, and he thought it would happen in, in Western Europe and um, in the urban centers. What ended up happening is you ended up going toward neo-Marxism which saw that the change would be more, maybe more agrarian, like what you saw in, in Russia mm -hmm. and in China, and that there would be a quiet revolution in which the state slowly takes over for giant companies. And so that there would be a privatization of the ownership of, of the means of production, or a, not a privatization, a public uh, a statization, a, a kind of a, a centering of that ownership by the state. And that improved the material position of the workers slowly, but still not legitimately. But you ended up, even with this, with the you ended up with the whole thing morphing, and no longer did you really have the capitalist bourgeois people being in charge, but you ended up with this executive management class, this executive kind of manager uh, layer. And they then ended up negotiating with unions and with workers and what have you. And the worker is still kind of lost, right? And out of this, you ended up with people with, you know, the, one of the aphorisms of capitalism is a rising tide lifts all boats. So even if you're poor, uh, still, you're not as poor as you used to be. So capitalism has at least helped you. The problem is if the top boats really go up high and you're barely going up, just barely doing subsistence, not only are you having a hard time in regard to meeting your basic needs, I mean, legitimately paying for things that sustain life, but you also are being rewarded much less than other people. And that ends up hurting the body politic. And so out of that came democratic socialism. And that, frankly, rejects much of Marx's analysis of capitalism in regard to a overthrow it's, uh, of the, 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 the bourgeoisie and the proletariat taking over. It actually challenges a strong, strong central state and tends to rely more upon market mechanisms. But it brings in the idea that there needs to be um, redistribution of wealth because this will hurt a society. When some people are, are, are getting more and more and more, you know, uh, 10 times, 100 times, 500 times as much as their lowest workers, that even if the lowest workers can pay their bills, that's going to cause um, the fracturing of your society. And that that is not fair and that is not just. So that's democratic socialism. So to, cap, uh, to recap, we basically have three different types. Communism, uh, neo-Marxism, and democratic socialism. And each step gets more closer and closer to using some sense of the market mechanism, even though it's not capitalist. Right. Okay, so 
having having that understanding how do we then like if it's fairly and kind of theologically understood what would we say some of the contributions of socialism overall not just socialism as as we kind of came into generally but even looking at those three communism neo-marxism democratic socialism like understanding those fairly honestly and also theologically what are some of the contributions of socialism overall I think that's a great question, and especially in our context in in North America, because we tend to extol the virtues of capitalism and can find all sorts of ways why we like that. And some of those are legitimate, as we Mm -hmm. said last week, and some of those are not, as we said last week. But it's really hard in the United States, in Canada, in some of Western Europe, mostly in the United States, to see anything good in socialism um, on the on the part of the the average person, because we've been so taught that it's just a one size fits all. Like I said, they don't parse the three different types that we just dealt with, and it's always evil. But in actual fact, socialism, especially I think democratic socialism, as we'll see in in more the um, the, the the toolbox. Uh, kind of episode that we're going to do sure. actually ha- it, it it might even align with elements of of Christian koinonia, but it, hmm. it basically it boils down to especially in regard to as you get closer to democratic socialism, equitable distribution of income and wealth because an econ- an economy has got to have that as its goal, um, and democratic socialism admits that the lot of many workers has indeed been improved in absolute terms by a use of the market mechanism. But it still maintains, sometimes very strongly, and I think this is fair, that there there are some additional goals that it does not see capitalism prioritizing. And for instance, there still needs to be a specific directed focus on poverty relief as an end goal in and of itself. I mean, people shouldn't have to work in order to breathe. Right. I mean, people should work. We've already said that that's an important, almost co-creating activity with God. It's not a disutility. But even if they don't, we should not. We cannot. You know, I don't think Christianly and justly just consign people to the death heap. And even when material poverty is absent, say if capitalism did just a bang up job in certain places, and all you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, and the the lower the lower boats still are doing so much better. Capitalism still, as I mentioned before, generates this significant disparities in income and wealth. And this generally leads to social discontent and envy on the part of certain people. And, you know, we've seen this a lot in the last year or two, and and probably for as long as our country has existed. And also, we have to recognize that all goods are not the same. You know, we're, we're um, an economic system produces goods and services, right? Not all goods are the same. We have something what economists call positional goods. That is the goods of uh, the good of being in a particular position, uh, being the head of a certain organization, uh, directing workers, having authority. And by definition, you can't have everybody doing that. They're they're scarce sometimes. You know, a, a CEO, a chief executive officer, usually there's only one. Right. And that positional good, by by definition, is limited to a few, maybe even to hardly any. And if you keep people out of that by definition, then you're going to actually, frankly, create a fertile so- uh, soil for racism, for classism, for sexism, 
for anti-LGBTQ and all this kind of stuff. So the hope of the neo-Marxists and the, the democratic socialists is that nationalization of some variety, or at least the uh, strong role of the state, will reduce the sense of alienation on the part of workers, um, and that that will, will, will wrestle with things. And then workers can just be um, be uh, you know treated po positively. The problem we've got, and I'll just kind of leave this here, is even though the market can actually alienate workers and can completely turn them into nothing but a factor of production and a tool for the system, to be honest with you, as we've seen in the Soviet Union and communist China and other places, the state can also do that. It can actually alienate workers. So I don't think we're out of the woods yet.